Hello, welcome Wordview podcast listeners. What up? <laughs> this is Graham Phillips, your host, and uh, got some interesting stuff to talk about today. Uh, I am recording this podcast from the back garden office of my house, which is uh, yet to be furnished or heated. So uh, if I do start shivering and my teeth start chattering partway through the broadcast, you know what's happened and you you know that I'm in need of help. <laughs> um, so yes, aside from the uh, frigid weather, um, I am very excited to be outside in my back garden office project I've been working on, uh, trying to get finished for, for quite some time actually. And um, this week is the week when it gets plugged in with electricity. So I should be able to get myself set up in my little uh, garden studio and hopefully start doing some more WordView podcast related things uh, in the not too distant future. Um, and yeah, of course, you know, all dependent on uh, this current situation with uh, COVID. Uh, we've got both kids at home at the moment. So as I'm sure many of you are finding, the homeschooling alongside trying to do a job is a little bit on the tricky side. We're making the best of it <laughs> and um, hopefully our kids won't go back to school sort of uh, sort of struggling because uh, because dad hasn't been doing such a great job of the homeschooling. Uh, but uh, yes, we're, we're all trying our best um, as we as we navigate our way through this tricky season. Well, today I want to discuss a number of things. Uh, first off, I'm going to revisit a subject that we talked about briefly last week at the end of this show, uh, which was this idea of the the baptism of fire, and uh, I want to I want to just kind of finish off because I didn't mention one particular angle or view of the baptism of fire that I think is uh, is important and kind of germane to the subject. So I'm going to uh, dive into uh, dive into that, speak about that. Uh, also, we're going to be looking at a really cool archaeological find. I think on the show, it's got to be over a year ago now, I think I did uh, one episode on biblical archaeology, which is an absolutely fascinating subject, which is always moving at pace. There's always new things being discovered. And today I'm going to be bringing you news on one of these discoveries was actually made back in the 1980s, but uh, after years and years of um, certain scholars and academics in the in the archaeological world looking into this particular artifact, they have finally come out and gone public to say that this is a legit um, historical item from the reign of King Jeroboam II. So we're going to look at what that is and hopefully that will be of interest to you. And then we're going to finish up discussing a rather major uh, biblical contradiction or so it seems. <clears throat> so we're going to look at uh, the alleged dispute or difference between the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John on the actual day on which the crucifixion took place. There are lots of really interesting debates around this issue and it is, I think, quite central to the subject of apologetics uh, because I think this being such an interesting debate uh, amongst scholars, it, it does tend to kind of 
inform the way that one does apologetics, depending on which side of this argument you come down on. And so we're going to take a look at that. You know, are, are there, uh, is there rather a contradiction amongst the gospel writers on the actual day of the crucifixion of Jesus? And it's something I hope to do more of, I think, in the coming weeks is to take a look at certain disputed scriptures and verses uh, in the Bible and particularly in the New Testament and take a look at them uh, because I think it helps us as apologists to kind of have our toolkit ready uh, for skeptics because one of the major attacks from the uh, skeptical world, uh, from the atheist world and even from the um, liberal slash progressive Christian world is the assertion that there are multiple contradictions in the Bible um, and so we want to have our defences ready in order to respond to these uh, concerns and um, hopefully address them uh, intelligently. So we're going to take a look at that shortly uh, but I did want to just mention something uh, that's connected to the episode last week. Um, somebody listening in uh, actually was my dear mother, who's a very sharp cookie. She uh, sharp cookie? I don't know if that works, but she's a she's a smart lady, <laughs> and she messaged me to uh, say, "Listen, uh, have you thought about the fact that probably many of those who preach the baptism of fire are thinking particularly of the tongues of fire?" Uh, that rested on the heads of the apostles and the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And that's actually what they mean by the baptism of fire. And um, have you thought about that? And uh, thinking about it, I said, well, yeah, of course. I actually think that is that is what many have in mind when they talk about the baptism of fire. It's that moment on the day of Pentecost when the tongues of fire rested upon the heads of those who were in the upper room at that time and when they came out they spoke in many tongues and I think that that, uh, that story, that, that event is actually what many believe that the gospel writers are referring to when they write about this baptism of fire, when they talk about, you know, one is coming who will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire, many will see um, that as a reference to the tongues of fire that appear on the followers of Jesus's heads on the day of Pentecost, <clears throat> which is an understandable inference. I, I think I, I get it. Uh, that does seem, with hindsight, to be rather uh, a an understandable kind of that's an understandable conclusion to reach. And uh, because we know with hindsight what happened on the day of Pentecost, uh, we look back and we say, well, yeah, that does seem to be a reference to that event. I think the only thing uh, in response that, that I think would discount that interpretation is that exegetically, as we mentioned last week, we have to look at every verse in its proper context. And the immediate context of the use of the word fire in each of the gospel accounts where baptism of fire is mentioned, fire is connected with judgment. And so, as we said, uh, exegetically, what we want to do is to allow that word to mean what it means within the context in which it's used, rather than um, 
taking that word out of its context, viewing that word in light of some other passage of scripture, and then reinterpreting that particular meaning, which is from elsewhere in the scriptures, back into our text uh, in point. So exegetically, I think it's very clear that, that fire in the two gospels where baptism of fire is mentioned is connected with judgment and as we said of course there are other um sort of illusions that we can draw from from fire in the new testament there is of course purity um purity and the greek word uh, pyros um not all will pronounce it that way but pyros does carry a sense of both pyrotechnics so fireworks but also of similar sound to our english word for purity uh, there was a definitely a picture of holiness um, that can be drawn from uh, biblical mentions of fire but but it does tend to be uh, judgment uh, and or, or holiness one or the two rather than being some kind of a um, passionate kind of experience um, so <clears throat> I think that as apologists we uh, we do need to learn a bit of the skills of biblical exegesis and learning to read and understand scriptures in their proper context and um, be aware, I think, I think certainly be aware for ourselves when we're reading the Bible, when we uh, try to interpret a scripture by reference to I think another scripture without doing the homework do you know what i mean it can be very easy to do that and uh i think today we'll touch on a subject later on about this issue of the alleged contradiction between john and the other synoptic gospel writers um there is there is a case in point for learning to do some of the hard work of exegesis and using the proper context and setting of each scripture to interpret what's actually being said you know, there's a great book um, by D.A. Carson on um, <clears throat> biblical fallacies. I'll try and pull it out next week and uh, give you the proper title of the book. But these are it's a great book and it lists essentially uh, several of the key repeated kind of fallacious ways of interpreting scripture. And one such fallacious method of uh, interpretation is what is called a word fallacy <clears throat> and excuse me a word fallacy is essentially where someone may look in an interlinear you've got an interlinear bible an english greek bible and they will look at a particular greek word and look at the range of meaning of that word and then they may choose to kind of interpolate one of those meanings uh, back into the text or, or say well it you know this word it could actually mean this here because that could be one of the meanings of that word certainly within its semantic range as we say and so uh, because it does have that semantic range we're therefore going to give it that particular meaning in this text if that makes sense now, what D.A. Carson says is that, you know, words are not used like that by writers. Uh, words are determined, the meaning of words rather, is, is determined by not just the semantic range of each word, but actually the context um, 
in which those words are used and to ignore one of the two sort of um one of the ignore one of those two things really either the semantic range of a word the range of meaning that word can have if we ignore that we're in we're in trouble because um we're not going to be able to get our meaning from a text by context alone uh, but equally if we ignore the uh, context the immediate context in which this word appears <clears throat> if we ignore either one of those two things semantic range or context uh, we aren't going to be able to accurately interpret what the biblical writers were saying in the first place especially since many greek words um, have a far broader semantic range than our english uh, words do and so you know for example the word kai for and can mean several things it can mean also um, sometimes when it when it's used we don't even translate it uh, because it, it sort of doesn't really serve uh, a a translatable function in that particular passage at the same way as the greek definite article you know in english we have the but in greek um, there are many forms of the definite article and uh, sometimes they serve different purposes they don't always just mean the and so if we're to begin uh, sort of translating the bible based on uh, simply the semantic range of a particular greek or hebrew word uh, we are sort of setting ourselves up a bit for a fall uh, falling into that trap of the word fallacy so as uh, as biblical scholars as uh, as each of us kind of goes on this journey of learning to interpret the bible faithfully we need to not just use um the idea of translating greek words or hebrew words uh using their semantic range we've got to look at the immediate context of every verse to inform um, our understanding of what the writers were originally saying <clears throat> so i will pull that book out next week uh, for you guys to uh, to have a look at or to grab it it's well it's well worth a read it's quite a short book um so <clears throat> yes no the uh <laughs> the baptism of fire is not pointing towards the tongues of fire although those tongues of fire were absolutely a sign that the baptism of the holy spirit had come uh, the baptism of fire uh, is connected to the immediate context of judgment in those two gospel passages and therefore the baptism of fire uh, is separate and distinct from the baptism of the holy spirit and it is connected with the final judgment wonderful well now we're going to take a little bit of a segue and we're going to start talking about biblical archaeology a fascinating subject which as i said is always developing pace and uh, growing up if you're like me and you were into your kind of documentaries on on uh, the discovery channel or, or the ancient history channel i used to love documentaries and um i still do still absolutely love documentaries and i shouldn't say used to but those that you'd find on the discovery channel or the history channel if ever they were about the bible they were always out to say that there was like zero archaeological evidence that the events of the Bible actually took place. And it was always a little bit galling to kind of watch these documentaries as a kid when I had no real learning 
uh, in those areas. So uh, as an adult kind of looking into this whole subject, I've, I've learned a few things. I, I've learned, number one, that this whole field of biblical archaeology is highly politicized, something that I hadn't uh, understood uh, as a younger, a younger man or as a younger adult. Um, this whole area is highly, highly politicized. There's a lot at stake, and um, it's worth remembering that when we are reading about um, biblical archaeology or, or what certain archaeologists, um, sorry, archaeologists have found at dig sites in the um, in the ancient Near East, uh, because uh, <laughs> there's a lot at stake. You have I don't want to get too much into it, but you ha- you have large political movements who are active in Israel and Palestine today with certain aims and objectives. And um, so any discovery is going to carry some political clout as well as religious. And so there's a, there's a ton of politics happening. Um, there are digs that are funded by certain uh, organizations that have certain political leanings there are other digs that are funded by other um, organizations that have different political leanings and so the findings um, are always going to be we always just have to i'm not going to say they're colored by um, political leanings because i think that would be unfair but it's important that we have um, our sort of critical thinking heads on uh, when we do read about things in the papers uh, about what has been discovered or has not been discovered rather in Israel and as I say this is also an ever-changing field so back in the 50s um, you have a very famous and eminent archaeologist a lady called Kathleen Kenyon who did multiple digs out in Israel one of the most famous was her dig site at the ancient city of Jericho it's a tell um, just outside of the modern city of Jericho and uh, in her digs, she uh, she essentially ruled out uh, the biblical account of the sack of Jericho um, because she didn't find a certain uh, type of pottery in her digs. She did, however, find burnt walls. Uh, she did find a crumbled down wall as well, uh, something that would seem to line up with the biblical account of what happened at Jericho. But critically, she said, um, yes, but this couldn't have happened in the time period that the Bible claims it happened, which is around about uh, 1400 BC, uh, because certain types of pottery that we know were extant at that time are not found here. And pottery is found everywhere. Um, it, it's what it's how we date things. Is what we. It's, it's how archaeologists date things uh, when they're on dig sites. And now it has been uh, discovered since Kathleen Kenyon's excavation that the type of pottery that she believed was lacking has been found and has been found um well a lot of it has been found at that particular tell um again um suggesting that the biblical biblical account of what happened at jericho is indeed accurate and that the timing that the bible has for those events is also accurate so it's an ever-changing field really interesting to keep your eye on it but also to have your critical head screwed on now today's story is coming to us uh, from uh, from israel and there's been a discovery of a buller a buller is a very small 
kind of oval shaped object that was used to imprint correspondence or letters in the ancient world and bullas are brilliant little artifacts because they very often will carry the name of the well they're an inscription of the individual who is writing and sending that letter so quite recently i think two years ago there was a bulla found in jerusalem in the city of david the ancient city of david carrying the name of king hezekiah which is an incredible discovery and now it has been confirmed that a bulla uh, which was discovered um in the 1980s or was bought actually by uh, a tourist from a market in Beersheba a Bedouin market um it has now been found that this item that was purchased unwittingly by some tourists is actually um a an ancient 8th century BC bulla uh from King Jeroboam I think it's 8th century that might be slightly out but um it is a bulla belonging to a servant of the King Jeroboam. If, in fact, if you look at it, there's a slightly raised impression on the bulla, which you can see as a, a roaring lion. I'll, I'll attach the link to this news story in the notes, but you can see a roaring lion, and then over which this over the lion is inscribed Le Shema Eved Yerovam, which means belonging to Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. Now this isn't Jeroboam the first who was the um, first kind of king of the north kingdom after um, David and Solomon's reign but this is Jeroboam 2 and historically is understood to have ruled from around 788 BC to 748 BC um, which is just a fantastic item to have been discovered and uh, it's taken quite a long time for scholars to kind of rule out the possibility of it being uh, a forgery uh, but it has now been shown to be legit and once again it's more evidence that the biblical account of history the history of Israel of, of Judah is accurate historically and so this again lends support to our witness as Christians that the Bible is reliable that it records events that happened in human history it's not a fable uh, and I think again as, as apologists this is a really interesting um, area of study for us uh, just because it again it just builds our trust and faith in the biblical records I, I will link as well to one of my favorite um, biblical archaeologists is a guy called Joel Kramer who is active out in Israel has been involved in uh, some digs and is also a tour guide and has some fantastic tour guide videos uh, taking you around many of the uh, sites of most interest in, in Israel and the Jordan region. So I will link to some of uh, Joel Kramer's videos, well worth a watch. Uh, again, I would say, word of caution, uh, in this area of study, uh, not only do you have the kind of skeptical side, but you also have the kind of fanatical Zionist side um, of this of the um, of the uh, spectrum. So it's just it as I say, it, it's good to have your your critical thinking head on, but you can't go far wrong with um, Joel Kramer, is a, a trained archaeologist and also a committed Christian and uh, really really interesting studies right finally today we're going to look at uh, perhaps one of the most 
important alleged um, differences in the gospel narratives. Now, in this day and age, uh, <clears throat> in this day and age, I think uh, there there is a kind of a split in the church, not a split, but but a difference of viewing scripture, um, whereby perhaps the influence of scholars liberal scholars of the 19th century german scholars um and more latterly uh, probably scholars such as uh, uh what's his name now the guy who was a christian bart ehrman but but uh, is no longer um bart ehrman uh and many of these other liberal scholars or Dominic, uh, John Dominic Crossan would be another example, liberal scholars, that the higher critics um, of the, um, the uh, Jesus seminar. <clears throat> these individuals have really um, kind of made for themselves a, 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 they've made for themselves a particular kind of uh, following <clears throat> and have influenced many Christians uh, quite quite powerfully really um, because they will claim that it's obvious that the Bible contains many con contradictions <clears throat> and perhaps one of the most important ones that Bart Ehrman goes back to time and time again in his debates is the contradiction between the Gospel of John and the other three Gospels about the actual date or day rather of, of Jesus's crucifixion. When did it happen? Did it happen on the 14th Nisan, which is the day of preparation, or did it, day of preparation of the Passover feast that is, or did it happen um, on the 15th Nisan? Now, this is a big debate and it has caused actually um, a rather large number of Christians in academic circles to just drop the idea of biblical inerrancy and inerrancy is the idea that that the Bible does not make uh, errors that it's God breathed therefore um, it contains no contradictions genuine contradictions um, or points of error and uh, it's this sort of thought from Bart Ehrman and, and also tracking back to the German liberal theologians of the 19th century um, and later it has impacted the world of theology to the point where many of the um, many Christian theologians no longer believe the Bible is inerrant, but believe it does contain mistakes and uh, contradictions. But that these Christians also still hold to um, to the infallibility somehow of Scripture, in that Scripture is still God's word, uh, that it still uh, speaks to us with authority today. Now. Um, on a on a lesser level, there are scholars like Mike Lacona, brilliant apologist, who concedes that John is at odds with the other three gospel writers on this point. That John just kind of kind of gets it wrong. He just duffs it on the date, um, and perhaps because John had different theological leanings, and so. Uh, this has become quite uh, quite an interesting issue in the church and I think certainly for us as apologists you know we want to be clued up and ready uh, to engage on these issues and I think what I want to um, share today is just that there is there are rather other readings of these so-called contradictions that I find compelling that 
even out what the gospel writers are really saying. And uh, I, I'm happy to share the links to the uh, the books that I'm drawing these from. Um, but it, again, it shows the importance of us as Christians doing our own homework, of being Bereans, and uh, of reading deeply into these issues so we aren't caught kind of uh, we aren't caught on the back step by these uh, arguments so <clears throat> I'll just dive into one particular verse today just because of time but one of the main assertions that these uh, skeptics will say and say look John is contradicting um, the other three gospel writers because Matthew Mark and Luke have Jesus eating the Passover meal on the day of preparation, uh, which was the Thursday night in, in our time, and being crucified the next morning. So that's what Matthew, Mark and Luke say very clearly. Now John seems to say otherwise. John seems to suggest that Jesus was actually uh, crucified um, as the Paschal Lamb on the day when the Paschal Feast was held rather than the day after. So John seems to suggest, according to these individuals, that, that Jesus hadn't eaten the Passover meal but was sacrificed on the day of the Passover Feast um, as the kind of Paschal Lamb. And, and the argument is made, well, John is really wanting for everyone to see here that Jesus is you know, the ultimate lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Paschal lamb. So he has him crucified on the day of the Passover supper, whereas the other gospel writers have him crucified after he's eaten the Passover supper. Now, the question we have to ask is, is that what John is saying? Now, first off, we have a mention in John 13, uh, verse 1, that says, Now, before the feast of Passover... Uh, Jesus goes to wash the feet of his followers, of his disciples. And many will say, well, there, there you have it. This is before the Passover, so we have not yet reached the moment of the Passover supper. Uh, so John is at odds here. Um, again, a reading into this text, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that he's saying before the feast. It can simply mean that before they sat to eat the feast. This is what happened. Secondly, there's the truth or the fact that um, whenever the word Passover is used in the New Testament, we have to do a bit of homework. We have to ask what's it referring to here because it's used in the New Testament in actually three distinct senses. It's used, the word Passover is mean, used to mean the actual Paschal Supper, so the meal itself. It's also used to talk about the Paschal Lamb, and it's also used to talk about the festival itself, uh, which lasted the week. It lasted uh, eight days in full, and seven days they ate the feast. Um, and it's also used, interestingly, the word for Passover is used eight times in John, apart from the instance we're about to look at. Um, but in every case, this it's actually the Passover festival that's meant. So we have to ask the question, when the word Passover ap appears, what's being meant? Is it the meal or is it the festival? So the verse we're actually going to look at here as well is uh, John nineteen fourteen, where 
John records that he says this, 1914. Now, it was the preparation of the Passover. Now, this, by the skeptics, by Bart Ehrman and others, is claimed to mean that this is the day preceding the Passover festival. So the disciples haven't actually eaten the Passover meal yet, but they're to prepare the Passover meal on, on that day. And John is uh, talking here about the um, about the trial by Pilate. So this is the day that Jesus is going to be crucified in John's writing. And so the conclusion is basically made that, well, here you go. This is it. Um, John has the day that Jesus is being crucified as the day of preparation of the Passover. So the feast would have been eaten that evening, in the evening after Jesus is crucified. I think the first thing we have to remember is that Jewish days and, and evenings are different than ours. Um, so the, the Jewish day actually began uh, at night. So a new day began at night time. And uh, so when we're talking about these things, it's important to remember that. Are the gospel writers talking to us about Jewish days and nights? Or are we talking about kind of Roman days and nights? And it's, it's clear that Romans, according to their historians, Plutarch, Pliny and others, kept time from midnight to midnight much as we do 12 hour um 12 hour spans from midnight so we have to ask that question is is what's being uh, talked about here is it jewish time or roman time but also here's a really interesting uh, fact is that the day sorry um here's another interesting fact is that it says now it was the preparation of passover uh, what's actually written in the original, in the Greek, is um, you've got ein de parascue to pascha, hora ein hos. So, parascue is what is translated as preparation here. Now, parascue also happens to be the word Friday, effectively, in Greek. It's what the Greeks called Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So, parascue could, could actually be translated and is used multiple times actually in the gospels to mean friday so what's a very probable translation of john 1914 is and it was the friday of passover as in of the passover festival since that's how john uses it so what he's actually saying here rather than being at odds with the other gospel writers he's actually agreeing with the other gospel writers that it was the friday that Jesus was crucified the Friday of the Passover festival and so Jesus did eat the Passover meal the evening before he's crucified and then he's crucified the following morning and we will get into another controversy next week which is the debate as to the time of Jesus's crucifixion um, another alleged um, difference between John and the other three gospel writers so we'll, we'll dive into that next week but when we understand that number one when John references Pascha or Passover it refers to the festival to the whole festival and not just to the feast and then secondly another really important fact to remember is this this fact that Parascue or preparation also is the word used for Friday by the Greeks. So 
rather than saying it was the preparation of the Passover, another likely translation would be it was the Friday of the Passover, therefore leaving us with no contradiction between the Gospel writers on the day on which Jesus was crucified. Well, I hope that's been of interest for you today. Uh, I'll be back next week with some more interesting discussions on supposed contradictions in the Gospels. And uh, until then, I wish you all the best. Keep safe and God bless.